before we uh, before we begin looking at Zechariah chapter twelve, there there are a few things that we have to uh, discuss going into twelve through fourteen. This is the part where we get into the um, the literature of you know uh, perhaps the end times, the apocalyptic visions of Zechariah and all these things. Zechariah twelve is going to begin that final section, um, and the prophet foretells events that'll come about when when God brings deliverance to His people and and punishment to the nations who oppose them. Uh, one of the first things that we are going to see is a phrase that's going to be repeated throughout this entire final section uh, of Zechariah, these last three chapters. He's going to preface almost all of his prophecies with the phrase, in that day. And now this is... This is a well-known idea in the minds of uh, the Jewish prophets, and it's something that all those hearing the the the, the words of Zechariah, reading this prophecy uh, close to the time that it was written, would know all about. The problem is, it's that our understanding of it in in a modern context is colored by that context, and so it's necessary for us to kind of unpack that before we go into uh, looking at what Zechariah actually said in chapter twelve. Uh, throughout the Bible. The the day of the Lord is it's used to foretell what God will do. Uh, the problem is that different prophets throughout the Scripture use the phrase to speak about different events. Uh, for example, uh, Amos in Amos chapter five speaks of the day of the Lord as it pertains to Assyria's attack on uh, Samaria, the northern kingdom of, of Israel. Uh, Joel uses uh, prophecies about the day of the Lord uh, in, in um, anticipation of when the Spirit of God is is poured out and the people uh, see visions and dream dreams. And Peter applies that prophecy in Joel directly to the events that happened at Pentecost. So that's a, a, a prophesied event of the day of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah kind of bounces back and forth in his use of the day of the Lord uh, to speak about Babylon or the Medo-Persians coming to destroy and also he uses it for when the day when God would consummate all things and uh, the the culmination of history when when everything is wrapped up and, and, and heaven and earth is recreated. So uh, the, of course we see the phrase the day of the Lord in, in the New Testament as well. It's, it's always pretty much referred to as in the context of the second coming of uh, of Jesus, so since the day of the Lord, this phrase, the day of the Lord, is used so often throughout Scripture to speak about so many different kinds of events, it's uh, it's safe for us to say that the phrase, the day of the Lord, refers generally to God judging His enemies and saving His people, regardless of uh, of what epoch of history you know we're talking about. God visited His people with judgment and redemption at various points throughout salvation history so when Zechariah speaks of in that day, we shouldn't necessarily jump to the the end of the world. You know, uh, I'm not saying that it's not that Zechariah is going to talk uh, about consummation in these last three chapters. So we are going to visit that subject, but we must let the text itself, in its context, determine our reading. That being said, and there's a reason why I give you such a long preface before all this. There there are usually two overarching views about what Zechariah 12 through 14 is talking about. Uh, there's usually two views. The first view is that Zechariah 
uh, is about the faithful remnants battle with the world throughout the age of the church, throughout what the New Testament apostles call the last days. They they say that the last days actually began with uh, with uh, the death and resurrection and continue on uh, throughout these. This is the the last time. The New Testament authors quote many passages in this section of Zechariah and apply them to Jesus and the writer of Hebrews explicitly states that the church, uh, the believers that are in Christ, they are the true people of Zion and they have come to the true Jerusalem. That's in Hebrews chapter 13. So the fulfillment of these things is found in the covenant community that is in reality uh, in Jesus Christ. They are the true remnant of of Israel. Right now I'm going through Acts with with my uh, uh, Sunday school class and what we see is from from Acts chapter 1 all the way to Acts chapter 7 the church is predominantly Jewish and in order to hear the church see the church become part of the church you had to stream into Jerusalem because that's the only place that God's true people were located it's only in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is martyred that the church is scattered out through outside of Jerusalem that's one view the other view is that Zechariah is talking about in these last three chapters, uh, he is only talking about the ethnic nation of Israel, and he is speaking of a literal end time attack on the city of Jerusalem. Now, in in the interest of full disclosure, um, I, I find a great many problems in the text with this view and how it relates to other Old Testament kingdom prophecies uh, throughout the throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. I'm not saying that there's no application for the end of history in Zechariah 12 through 14. Uh, in fact, we will see that there is most certainly that application, and Zechariah is going to draw that out for us. But the application we find throughout, more often than not, speaks of the deliverance and the judgment of God as it comes through the age of Jesus' church, who is the true Israel. Zechariah is prophesying about a time when the people will be turned back to God to follow the good shepherd. Uh, He's speaking of a time when the world will be at war with the faithful remnant of God's people. And as we read the repeated usage uh, of parts of Zechariah 12 through 14 by the New Testament authors to describe Jesus and his church, I just don't think that... um I just don't think we can get around the fact that they themselves, the New Testament authors themselves, believe that the fulfillment of these prophecies is found in the New Testament church, which, by the way, like I said before, was entirely Jewish uh, in the early chapters. So uh, it's not uh, it's not going above and beyond the uh, the application of this text to say that uh, uh, they were talking about a time when the remnant of Jerusalem, when the remnant of Israel would be drawn back to God in this in this new age. They considered themselves, the New Testament apostles considered themselves the faithful remnant of which the prophet spoke and by God's grace he opened the door to that community for the Gentiles as well. And so we see that in in the New Testament. Now, 
Before we even begin, I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me about that, and and that's okay. There are there are a lot of super smart, godly people who interpret these chapters uh, differently, and that's okay. Uh, but regardless as to when you think this prophecy is fulfilled, the principles that God shows His people throughout this section are going to remain the same. So whatever you choose to believe about the fulfillment of these chapters, uh, if you relegate these things to just some future events which will happen one day in the, in the Middle East, um, in my opinion, you're going to miss out what these chapters are teaching uh, you as God's people right here, right now. You and me as uh, the remnant uh, of God's people that is, that is found in, in Jesus Christ. So in the first part of chapter 12, we get a glimpse of God's people under siege. Uh, but before we look at the judgment God brings upon his enemies and the protection and victory he gives his people, he makes sure that we understand who we're talking about here. We are talking about the sovereign God of the universe, uh, the one who has control over all things. Nothing can stand against his purposes and prosper. Nothing can cast down his will. He crushes and raises up nations and establishes or throws down kings. Verse Verse 1 in chapter 12 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. This prophecy is given as the word of God. It's introduced as such in verse 1. And God makes sure that we know that it's by his authority that the heavens and the earth uh, was founded. So he has complete authority uh, over all creation, over everything that he's made. Uh, generally, we don't have a problem ascribing ownership of uh, of the creation to God and his sovereign right to do with it as he sees fit. Uh, but that last part of verse 1, that's, that's a little harder for us to swallow sometimes. Uh, he not only created and founded the heavens and the earth, but he alone formed the spirit of man within him. I mean, make sure you understand the ramifications of what he's saying right here. Uh, not only does he have ownership rights over creation because he himself formed it, but he has authority over the spirit of man inside him because he formed that as well. Have, have you ever considered the fact that Christ has legal ownership over you that's not a that's not a pleasant uh, pleasant thought to a lot of people uh, in fact unless you've unless you've been born again by the spirit of god that's something that's uh, nigh impossible to accept we don't want to give up our control and we don't want to be viewed as a slave who's been purchased by by someone else but that is exactly how the apostles of jesus introduced themselves uh, in the in the letters that they they wrote to the 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 churches of the first century, uh, Paul said, "A slave, Paul, a slave of Christ." Peter, a slave of Christ. We have not only been created by the one who has authority over us, but we have been purchased uh, by the death of Christ, as if we were slaves on an auction block being sold. Uh, he bought us, and he has ownership rights over us. That is uh, supremely important as we walk through this prophetic section of Zechariah. We love the fact that God makes all these promises of victory and deliverance, of protection and redemption. Uh, but we so often miss the implication that the reason he is able to make these promises and assure us that nothing in this world can defy what he has said, it's 
it's because he's in control. Uh, he has authority over everything he's promising. Uh, I mean, that means he has authority over you and I as well. Uh, that means he has authority over what goes on in the country uh, and in the world. He is our creator, and as such, he has the right to do whatever his will is. But because of this fact, you know, the fact that he has complete authority, those who are his people through the blood of Christ we can breathe a sigh of relief because nothing can stop his promises that he's made to his children. Uh, many of the promises we see here are so wonderful and awe-inspiring that uh, to just stop and ponder on them, uh, it'll, it'll fill us with excitement and wonder about about life. And so in the first section of this chapter, uh, verses 1 through 4, God is <clears throat> promising that he will confound the nations that set themselves up against his remnant, against his people. Uh, verse 2 and 3 say, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. Now, here right at the beginning, we're going to be faced with the results of our, our chosen hermeneutic. Um, uh, a hermeneutic. So our hermeneutic is a method of interpretation, the, the grid by which we interpret things. These prophecies are given to the people of Israel by God through Zechariah and are related to the city of Jerusalem. And the people of Judah. Uh, this is where following the New Testament interpretation of kingdom prophecy, the apostles themselves, how they interpreted kingdom prophecy is so important. If you view Israel, uh, quote unquote Israel, as uh, an ethnic group only over there in the Middle East, uh, you will have to take these prophecies in a wooden literal sense, which, uh, to be honest, will give you a picture of an end times battle. Uh, where nations of armies on horseback will attack Jerusalem. Uh, but if if you see these prophecies as the New Testament authors see them, you will quickly understand that Jesus is their fulfillment. The people that are in him are the remnant of Israel. Paul tells the predominantly Gentile church in Galatia, he calls them the Israel of God. He says that at the, at the end of the book of Galatians. Uh, he also says that, only those in Christ are truly Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. He says that in Galatians 2. And Galatians was a predominantly Gentile church or collective of churches. Um, in Ephesians 2, uh, Paul also says that the Gentiles who were far off from the commonwealth of Israel have been brought near to that commonwealth by the blood of Christ. And, of course, the writer of Hebrews, we've already said, it's, he states emphatically that his readers have come to Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, because of their faith in Christ. Um, it also reminds me that in Galatians, Paul says that there are two Jerusalems. He said one, which is below, talking about the actual city, uh, is in slavery to the law. And he says in Galatians uh, chapter 3, I believe, it may be chapter 4, he says that uh, that the other Jerusalem, the uh, the one who is which is above, is free. And that Jerusalem is the mother of us all because of, of Jesus. And so what we're looking at here is God making his people an obstacle and a stumbling block to the world's sinful uh, predilections and, and programs. At, uh, at all times, in every era, the world will come against God's 
people. It's it's it happened in Jesus's day. It's happening right now in our day. And yes, it most certainly will happen at the on the last day as well. Uh, we can see this fact throughout history in varying degrees. So rather than pushing this off, the principle of this uh, this uh, prophecy off into some future t- some future event, uh, we can see its application right now, right here in the in the remnant of God's people in these last days. We can see this fact throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, since the life and times of Jesus, Satan and this world system have waged war against God's people and his purposes. Today, uh, you may or may not live in an area of the world where rampant, violent persecution is a reality, uh, but there are still most certainly places where Christians are persecuted under that kind of human rebellion against God. Um, one of the one of the most fascinating things fascinating things in in, in the in the history of the world is the re- realization that throughout history all the way back from the very beginning when god's word and god's people came under a vehement attack uh, that is the times in which the church grew by its greatest margin uh, one of the early church fathers tertullian uh, commented about this uh, fact when he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he was noticing in, in that even when the world and God's enemies were raging violently against the truth, the gospel continued to grow. People continued to come to know Christ and the remnant of God's people grew in the face of that persecution. No matter what horrific display of depravity the world could possibly devise for God's people. Just like Jesus said, the gates of hell won't prevail uh, over his church. And so in these texts, we see God giving a promise that his people are so firm in their foundation, so protected under the providence of God, that when they are attacked, the attackers themselves will suffer harm for it. Uh, it's the nations who decide they will drink up God's people like a bowl of wine here. But God says that that bowl of wine, when the people try to drink up, when the nations try to drink up his people, that that uh, they, they believe that they're defeated his people, but his people will become a cup of staggering unto them. They will not consume God's people entirely. The picture is uh, of, of, a, of a conqueror thinking he's going to make himself uh, full and fat on the on the the, the blood of the church, but uh, instead he he backs up staggering from the from the uh, from the staggering intoxication of it. Uh, instead of consuming it, he's not able to uh, he's not able to partake of it um, now people may be martyred here and there uh, churches individual churches may f- rise and fall but the body itself the church itself will continue because they will cause harm to themselves the nations will by coming against that church uh, in another f- familiar picture the nations will try to lift God's people out of the way as one lifts uh, a rock out of the middle of ro- the road. That's what he says. This is my people will be a stone uh, of stumbling, and everyone who tries to lift it will hurt themselves, injure themselves. God's people and His word are nothing more than an obstacle, easily removed to those uh, who are of the world, or so they think. But uh, 
the church is, is salt and light in the world, uh, always showing forth the truth of God's word and the reality of right and wrong as it pertains to obedience to God's word. So it would be better for the world if we could, uh, you know, they think we could just silence these people, just just shut down their viewpoint, just move them out of the way as an obstacle to, to be removed. Uh, and that's not a new thought. You know, the Romans tried it, and, and down through history, every nation that set itself up against God has tried it. But God says here that by trying to move that rock out of the way, so to speak, these nations are going to injure themselves because uh, this rock was placed here by God and abides under his protection. All those who lift it uh, will hurt themselves. Um, There is a sign over the people of God saying, oppose them at your own risk. Uh, There will always be persecution. We're not denying that. There will always be those who suffer and are martyred for the faith. We're not denying that. But the body of Christ, the remnant of Israel, the true remnant in Christ, will never be cast down, never be destroyed. God himself protects them. And the end of verse 3 in verse 4 say and all the nations of the earth will gather against it that's the end of verse 3 and verse 4 says on that day here's our on that day phrase declares the Lord I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness but for the sake of the house of Judah I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the people with blindness so here once again we have an on that day statement when judgment and salvation collide on the day of the Lord himself, uh, he, he himself will fight for his people. Now, for those taking a wooden literalistic view of these texts, you have to be ready to explain to me how the nations of the world will come against Israel in an end time battle on horseback. Uh, if that's the case, you know, hey, you know, Israel is pretty well armed these days. You know, a few planes, a few tanks, uh, that would surely be enough to uh, protect the city against an army on horseback. But Zechariah is using the realities of his own time to give us this principal promise for God's people everywhere. In biblical times, uh, a cavalry, a horseback, was uh, one of the most formidable weapons in battle. In fact, God, if you look back in the Old Testament... God told his people on more than one occasion that they were not to trust in horses or chariots, but they were to trust in him. And the idea the idea here is that the greatest armies in that day would be ones that were entirely on horseback. If you had a lot of horses, a lot of chariots, then your army was strong and was able to uh, mow down other armies who were just composed of foot soldiers. Um, those armies that were on horseback, uh, he's saying here that this this great army won't be able to stand against the power of God because with a single utterance of his voice he can blind them blind them all and throw them into a panic now reading this promise if you're biblically literate you know that your mind is immediately brought back to the account of Elisha in the Old Testament who prayed as the armies of of cavalry were bearing down on him and God did that exact thing he blinded the horse and the rider so that Elisha uh, you know sent them marching off into into enemy territory you know blind and and unaware uh, so the point here 
is a, it's a very powerful one for God's people who are faced with the opposition of the world and and even powerful governments or or even those who are faced just with the world system that is is growing more and more secular and it seeks to to shut out all thought and conversation about what God uh, calls right and wrong. There is no need for us in Jesus to fear the world. They have no power against the authority of the one true God. Every persecution that comes to the church of Jesus Christ does so because God has allowed it for a purpose. Uh, we are told we are told over and over again in Peter, James, the epistles of Paul that we are to rejoice in our suffering because God is using these sufferings and trials to grow our faith, our endurance, uh, and to and to grow His kingdom as well. Uh, there is no reason to fear. Right now, we are. Uh, beginning an election year here in the United States. You know, already you turn on the news and it's just everywhere. You can't get away from it. And so many people are terrified that their particular candidate uh, won't win or the other ideology will gain a foothold in the nation. And uh, God's people don't have to worry about such things. Now, of course, we should vote and we should take part in the process and vote by your biblical conscience and all those kind of things. We, We should do so on the basis of God's word and moral character, uh, born again heart. But after our duty in these matters is done, we we should never fear what the world is becoming. We are explicitly told in Scripture that the world will get worse and worse as people are deceiving and being deceived. Second Timothy three twelve says, "Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." In uh, verse thirteen of Second Timothy three says. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We are already told that it's going to happen. We shouldn't be surprised or shocked that we see it coming around us. Uh, We shouldn't cower in fear, feel like we have to accommodate the world because of the times that we live in. We are to stand fast in the word of truth and the gospel of the kingdom, even though we know our message. uh, We know our message and our Messiah is growing increasingly more uh, distasteful to the world. Uh, But we don't bow, we don't bend to the to uh, to anyone except to God himself. There's no reason to. God has told us these things are going to happen. He's told us they're coming, and he's told us the end of these things. So as we see them happening, we shouldn't be shocked, and it should cause us to trust more in the promises of God, not less. Uh, God alone is in control, and he alone allows things to happen for his purposes. He says here that while he strikes the horses and riders with blindness, he will keep his eyes open and upon his people. The people of God are protected under his care. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't face death or persecution or suffering or anything like that, but even death or persecution can do nothing to alter the status and the redemption that we're given in Jesus Christ. The greatest gift a secular world can give the child of God is death. When we understand that, understand that, death, and that, death, and that death means sin and the flesh is over, and we have come fully and perfectly into the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to, to, uh, to reign with him forever. So 
The first four verses of Zechariah deal with the protection of God's people against those who would uh, attack them uh, from the outside. Uh, Then verses 5 through 9 are going to show God's protection over his people and and the strength he he provides for them. So first let's look at verse 5. It says, Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. Uh, before we look at God's work in our hearts, uh, which is going to be in the next section, it is important that He shows us where our strength actually comes from. He says the clans of Judah. Incidentally, Jesus uh, was from the tribe of Judah and representative of it. So, if you are in Jesus, He's talking about you right here. Uh, the 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 clans of Judah will say and know that their strength comes from the Lord of hosts. Uh, the word hosts means armies. So when you hear the throughout the prophets, Lord of hosts, or throughout the Old Testament, it's uh, the words actually Yahweh Savaoth, which means uh, the, the Lord of armies. So we understand that in and of ourselves, we're not able to wage war in our own hearts, much less in the outward battle against the world, but our strength doesn't come from our own goodness or our own righteousness. Our strength comes from the grace and power of God who has given us perfection and righteousness through the blood of His Son. Not only has He given us strength, but that strength is manifested in such a way that He says we will blaze with it before all those who would oppose us. Look at verse 6. It says, On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples. With Jerusalem shall again be inha- while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. The truth of the gospel and the victory of the testimony of Christ will devour all those who come against it, so that those who dwell in Jerusalem will be secure as they inhabit their place. The gospel will go forth and consume all that it touches. It will either, when when I say consume, what I mean is it'll either consume in salvation or it'll consume in judgment. Uh, Many Christians have trouble understanding this truth, and they get discouraged sometimes when uh, their message uh, of redemption is not readily accepted by the world. Uh, Many a witness has become downtrodden when people reject what God says is true. And there is a tendency to, you know, you want people to accept it. So it's a tendency to try to, you know, alter the message a little so that it becomes more palatable and it becomes more acceptable and easier to, to hear and take in by the modern world. But the gospel isn't just proclaimed to bring salvation. Now think about this for a moment. It's also proclaimed for judgment. People who hear the gospel and reject it will answer for the fact that they have been given the means and opportunity for salvation, but chose to follow the world instead. God said that uh, his word would not return void, which means that it will accomplish what it is intended to do. It will save those who turn to it, and it will condemn those who reject it. Either way, it will consume all those who come in contact with it. And then verses 7 through 9 say, 
I mean, they almost read like a summary statement of everything that Zechariah has uh, already been telling us. It says, And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. Uh, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. God, what he's saying is God will save and restore his people. He will protect those that dwell with him and he'll give power and strength to all his children from the feeblest of children all the way to the most powerful. Even the weakest among them will be like a David uh, and the the strongest among them will be like the angel of the Lord leading them. Uh, At the coming of the Spirit, God imparted himself into every single believer. There are not different classes of believers who have greater or lesser access to the King of Kings or to his the power of his resurrection. All believers are indwelt by God himself and all have access by grace through faith to the unlimited resources of victory and redemption that come with being a child of the King. So what we see here is uh, verses 1 through 9 show the attacks of God's enemies from the outside and God's promises to deal with those who would come against his word and his people. And we can surely see those attacks coming today. Uh, as Zechariah moves into verses 10 through 14, we start to see that Zechariah is also showing us how God will conquer the hearts uh, of his own people. There are there are enemies. Not only do does uh, do we have enemies outside that are attacking us from the outside, but we also have enemies that are attacking us from within ourselves. And that is in this fallen world, we live in flesh. We live, although you may have been born again and you have the spirit of the living God living inside of you, you are still not perfected yet. When I say not perfected, I'm talking about in your practice in your walk. Uh, We are perfect before the eyes of the Father, but in our day-to-day lives, we are not yet perfected. We're being perfected and sanctified, uh, but there is a battle that goes on. Paul talks about it in Galatians. It is a war between the Spirit of God that lives in us and the flesh that that we still dwell in until these... uh, Bodies and uh, all creation are are perfectly uh, redeemed, and so uh, the greatest enemy for for me in my own you know personal view, as I think on uh, the the scriptures and the, the promises and the warnings that God gives, uh, the greatest enemy for me is not you know who's going to be the next president or what army's doing what or what dictator is getting nuclear bombs and all. Uh, I mean, those are sure th- things to be be. Uh, marginally concerned about their things to be you know to be prayerful over and uh, if given the opportunity we are to act by God's word and and to do the good that we know that is supposed to be done Uh, but the greater enemy in my view is is my own flesh it's the guy that I see in the mirror because uh, he is uh, more deceptive he is more cunning he is uh, easily tempted by Satan easily can lead me off uh, away from the word of God and so the enemy within the flesh that uh, dwells within me is is something that uh, God has to conquer because I am powerless to do it and 
if you're honest, so are you. Um, and so in verse 10 through 14, that's what he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about not only conquering the enemies that come against God's people from the outside, but conquering the enemies that are, are that remain within us. And verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus is the the perfect descendant of David, the heir to the promise that God gave David. You find yourself in Christ, then you are of the house of David. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he said, I'll pour out on that house a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, what he's showing here is God will pour out a spirit of repentance. He will give his people repentant hearts. He will pour out his spirit upon them and, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're uh, if you're uh, acquainted with the New Testament, you'll recognize that this is uh, one of the verses that is quoted uh, by the New Testament by the New Testament authors uh, uh, in uh, in uh, well, by John in Revelation one. They'll look on him who they have pierced, uh, and so. It is it is actually given, and it's Revelation chapter one. So uh, it's given as being fulfilled in Christ when uh, when uh, he pours out his spirit. Now we need to think about this for just a moment because there it's used by the New Testament authors to speak of Jesus. We know that, um, but this verse, I'll pour out my spirit on the house of David, Jerusalem, spirit of grace, uh, pleas for mercy. So when they look at me, the one whom they've pierced, they shall mourn. Um, there is a multifaceted fulfillment that we can track, uh, throughout salvation history of this. Um, in one sense, when he says, "I'll pour out a spirit of grace upon them," uh, this was this was fulfilled when God, in fact, did so. He did pour out His Spirit on the Jews in Acts chapter two uh, at Pentecost, uh, when the when the church was actually born. Uh, he poured out this Spirit, and that's the fulfillment of Joel and the prophecies about the Spirit of God coming on all those uh, all believers and uh, sons and daughters will prophesy and dream dreams and that whole deal. Uh, but there's also a sense, and like I said before, that it is fulfilled as it is quoted by John in Revelation 1-7. It's recorded by John in Revelation 1-7 uh, when uh, God's people, the, the remnant, will repent at the end of history at Jesus' return. And we can see that uh, this is where we get into, and we're going to talk about this throughout chapters 13 and 14, but there seems to be a, a, a coming time when a mass of uh, a Jewish people, people will in fact have repentant hearts and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and we can see fulfillment of this in that aspect that there's coming a day when when uh, droves of of national Jewish people will repent and turn to Christ and so we see that coming at the end of history uh, and then of course you also have um the fulfillment of this is in John nineteen thirty seven when Jesus was actually pierced with a spear and the people standing around the cross and even one of the Roman soldiers after Jesus died said truly this this is the the uh, Son of God and so 
there's a multifaceted fulfillment that uh, that you see here. But the point of the text is that God will give them a spirit and give them repentant hearts so they will mourn for him. What he's talking about here is a, a, a change of heart. He's talking about a supernatural encounter with God where he uh, indwells people in such a way that they are convicted, they are cut to the quick, their hearts are pricked, as the, the Jewish crowd said to Peter on the day of Pentecost, uh, and they say, what shall, what shall we do? I mean, how can we be saved? And they are mourning over the fact that the, the Son of God was uh, killed on a on a cross and and uh, rejoicing in the fact that he r- was risen from the dead. It says that they will repent and they will mourn as a parent mourns for uh, a child. And that's what the verse said, at the, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him and one weeps over a firstborn. Now, I had a discussion with a person in the in the hospital uh, just yesterday about the the true meaning of uh, of repentance and struggling against sin and you know we can always see it in someone else when someone says you know I am a I, I'm a drug addict and they say you know I'm a drug addict but you know we all got our stuff and you know that's just mine and you know it's really kind of funny and I, I you know I, I like doing it and I don't really know I shouldn't but you know it's all good and we all just have to is that a person that's struggling with that addiction. No, it's not. Of course not. And any honest person would say, even this person that I was talking to said, no, that person's not struggling. That person has accepted what the, what they are and who they are. And so uh, that's the same thing that we see with, with someone who says they're struggling with sin. God will put a spirit in you that will cause you to hate sin. Uh, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect, but you will struggle with your sin. The person who says, says, oh yeah, come on now, we all sin, it's all good, you know that uh, you, you do bad stuff too, and don't judge me because, you know, this is just kind of who I am, and it's just, we all got our stuff. That's not a person who is mourning over their sin. That's not a person who's mourning over the fact that Jesus died because of the sins that are in my life. That's not a poor, poor person that's mourning as if a parent that has just lost a child. I mean, take the image that he gives us here in Zechariah, and a Apply it to your own heart. Apply it to your own family. If your child has uh, passed away or whatever and someone comes along nonchalantly making light of the situation, uh, it would enrage you. I mean, it would it would anger you to no end because of, uh, you know, you are mourning for some someone that you love dearly. And so when we sin, God's, God says, I'll put a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy in them that when they sin, they will mourn over that. They will mourn over the fact that it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. I, it was my undoing. It was my ugly heart. It was my uh, my life that uh, made it necessary for Christ to suffer the the persecution and the uh, the execution that He did endure. And so He said, "I will give them uh, repentant hearts. I'll give them. I will make their hearts mourn because of the sin that caused the death of my son." And then, uh, then again, He says. In uh, uh, 
the next verse it says on that day the the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Raman in the plain of Megiddo now what what the reference is if you're not familiar with uh, the history of the kings in, in the Old Testament what he's talking about here is a reference to second Chronicles uh, 35 where Josiah was killed in battle um, let me see if I can pull it up real quick and I'll just read you uh, excuse me those those five verses in uh, in second chronicles uh, 35 25 or no 20 that's what it, it says it says uh, after all this when Josiah had prepared the temple Nico king of Egypt went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates and Josiah went out to meet him but he sent envoys to him saying what have we to do with each other king of Judah I am not coming against you this day but against the house with which I am at war and God has commanded me to hurry cease opposing God this is what Nico is telling Josiah who is with me lest he destroy you nevertheless Josiah did not turn away from him but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I'm badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Now, Josiah was not just uh, any king. He was a king that brought these sweeping reforms that brought uh, that brought people back to God. He he. Uh, they did the book of the law, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, law of Moses was found uh, it, it, tucked away in some some secret place in the temple under Josiah's reign. And he read the book of the law and he started to reform the people in the city back to uh, keeping the the law of God. He went around smashing the idols, the Asherah poles and the and the false idols and all those kind of things. He went around destroying all those and. <clears throat> And so he was hailed as one of one of the good kings. Even in scripture, he's hailed as one of the the good kings. And so when when he was killed, when he was killed in battle, uh, there was such a mourning in the in the city and around the surrounding areas, as if as if you know their their hope was lost, uh, the hope to turn back to God was lost. And so this is what he's comparing. I'll, I will cause them to mourn just as they mourned when Josiah was killed in the plains. Uh, of Megiddo, all the people, and we'll read the last uh, twelve through fourteen is the last uh, three verses of this chapter. But he wants to make sure that he's not talking about just the super Christians. He's not talking about just the those who are are really, really, really in love with God. He said, "All, all of my people will have a heart." like this that that hates their sin and mourns over their sin and mourns the death that uh, they caused that I caused to the savior it says verse 12 says the land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the, the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. What he says here is there's not going to be all, it's the same thing that J- Joel 
quotes uh, and, and the fulfillment we see in Acts chapter 2. Uh, God will pour out his spirit on all his children. Uh, all his children will have access uh, to the, the holy of holies through the blood of Christ. All of his children will be new creatures in Christ Jesus with hearts that mourn their sin and mourn the fact that it was their sin that made it necessary for the Son of God to die on a cross. What God is saying in this final section of chapter 12 is, not only will I conquer the nations that come against my people, not only will I conquer the world that sets it up, sets itself up against my people, but I will conquer the very wicked hearts of mankind. It's a much harder battle, a much more deadly enemy that God says that he is going to conquer. But as I told the person I was speaking to yesterday, this is the evidence of salvation. It's the evidence of victory that my heart has been changed by the spirit of the living God to love him, to follow him, to desire to serve him. Am I doing it perfectly? Absolutely not. Not by any stretch of the imagination, but my desire, my supernatural God-given desire is to serve him, love him, follow him, be in relationship with him, and to hate my sin. Even when I do sin, uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit uh, brings it to my remembrance, brings it to my attention, and my heart mourns over it. I can remember just a quick anecdote before we go. Um, I remember before I was actually born again, I, I studied the Bible for for quite a few years. I was in church. I was doing all the things that the uh, you you see actual believers do all the time. Uh, however, I was not a was not a believer in Christ. Uh, I, I believed in the historical facts of the gospel, but I had never uh, trusted Jesus with my own heart. And so I would go every day at uh, I used to work at a body shop painting cars. I would go every day on my lunch break and I'd go sit in this parking lot in my truck with my Bible and a commentary and different things and I would pray and I would read and and uh, I truly enjoyed it I truly did and so uh, I was uh, the person who uh, believed the facts of the gospel, but yet there was still uh, a multitude, of, a myriad of evidence in my life that I had not been changed. One of the things that was indicative of this, and, and I'm not saying anything about this particular sin or that. Each person's got to examine their own heart. I'm just telling you about me. Uh, one way that it fleshed out in my life in particular was uh, my mouth. I, I had a, uh, a foul mouth. Uh, I had a uh, a mouth that uh, you know. Well, let's just say it, it was no problem for lots of obscenities to 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 spew from my mouth. All the while I was praying, all the while I was reading my Bible, I was going to church. I was I believed in the historical facts of this gospel. Well, the day came when God actually saved me. He actually converted me. He turned me from darkness to light, and I, I fell on my I fell on my face, and I repented and trusted in Him. And uh, the next Next day, I went to work and I was uh, under uh, a truck turning wrenches like I'd always done. And uh, the wrench slipped. I busted one of my knuckles on the bottom of this uh, this truck. And something came out of my mouth, as it had so often before, that no believer should ever say. Uh, and to be honest, I had said it a million times before. Uh, I had said things worse than that so often before. But this time, when it came out of my mouth, my heart hurt. I mean, it was almost like, how could you do this to the one who has given you life and the one who has forgiven you? 
And for the first time in my life, when it came out of my mouth, I mean, it hurt. It hurt bad. And I'm not going to say I haven't done anything since then or I haven't sinned since then or nothing's you know come out of my mouth that shouldn't since then. But the difference between that day and the day before was I had a new heart that hated it. I had a new heart that despised it. I was truly struggling with sin. It wasn't just, whoops, well, I, I made a, I made a boo-boo. I better, you know, uh, I better watch my mouth. I better go. It wasn't like that. It was a, a hurt in my heart that uh, it ached because of what I had done. And so to me, that is a far greater miracle than God protecting his people against armies who would come to kill them or persecute them or whatever. The miracle is the fact that he is powerful enough uh, not just to create something out of nothing, uh, but to take an old, black, nasty heart like mine and to transform it into a heart that longs for him and seeks after him and desires to serve him him.